0: guys another month another episode I'm always amazed at how quickly a month goes by you may notice my voice sounds a little nasally and I am getting over a whole sinus thing that was just awful I feel like being this pregnant and having a sinus infection is just not fun um, but I I think I'm on the mend and I am so excited about today's episode. I know I've been dropping stuff in the Stable Moments podcast Facebook group to get you guys ready for this and I personally feel so passionate about how our life and our experiences, our childhood, everything that's happened to us up until this point in our life is what we bring to every uh interaction that we have with people. We bring it to our job, we bring it to our marriage, we bring it to our volunteer work. So when we think about being mentors uh, or we think about serving children, um, volunteer work, you know, when we are starting to, we're, we're choosing to serve other people, we're choosing to shine on them and pour into them. Well, we need to make sure that what we're pouring into them is gold, right? And that it's not about us and that we're there for them. And all of that's great. But so many people that are called to this work, called to be social workers, called to uh, give to others, it's because they have an amazing capacity for empathy. And typically, you know, or sometimes that can come from uh, them not having everything they needed as a child. I mean, I know that a lot of my reasons for getting into social work was because I didn't want what happened to me or how I was perceived uh, to be the experience of somebody else. So I felt like I wanted to grow up and I wanted to be an advocate. So a lot of people are bringing their own stuff to this work, right? And that's what makes us so good. We have this deep level of empathy because we've been there. We can relate. But of course, there's always the other side of that of we don't know everybody else's experiences. We can't bring, uh, we can't say that our experience is somebody else's experience and we need to be able to step back. So a lot of times people do want to get into this work and just say, listen, I just want to show up for a kid and I don't really want to work on me. This isn't about me. So to, you know I do tell people all the time this isn't about you uh this isn't about what you're going to get out of it this is about what a kid's going to get out of it and for this hour you need to put yourself aside and that's true in the mentorship it's not about you but you're still bringing your reactions your interactions how you respond are all you know your way of doing that you're bringing your own experiences to that interaction so when you're not in that hour with that child or you're not you know, directly interacting, it's really imperative that we step back and we do the work, that we look back at our childhood, we look back at how we are showing up to different interactions, and we kind of make meaning of everything that's happened to us and how it impacts how we show up. And it can be good or bad, it can be, you know, I have a lot of strengths that are incredible resilience factors. They have helped me become the person I am today and they have helped me be um, successful and survive and get through and be scrappy. But those things can also be taxing, right? So if I'm not checking those and seeing why I'm doing those and what's the motivation and intention behind those and why I feel like I need to do those things, then i I'm not serving you guys, I'm not serving stable moments locations, I'm not serving kids as much as I can um, and another thing is we're asking people to heal, right? We're showing up and we're saying we want to give you healing and all of that and so you need to be willing to turn in and heal yourself even if you don't think you have anything to heal. Um, there are big traumas and little traumas, and we talk about that today on the podcast. Um, and a lot of times we minimize a bunch of stuff, you know, we minimize, oh yeah, you know, my mom or my dad did this, but it wasn't that big of a deal. We all, you know, rode in the back seat without our seatbelts on or, or double buckled in the front seat without a seatbelt or whatever. And yeah, that might be like true that we all did it, but it doesn't mean that it was Right. And there's different things uh, that, that we've experienced that a lot of times, you know, we don't pause to say, hmm, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't do that with my kid nowadays. And that doesn't really show them their value or that we want, that, that they should be protected. And that's just one very small example. But there's a lot of uh, things that we go through that, you know, we don't take the time to stop, pause, go back and say, how did that affect us? Um, and what message were we given? Uh, With that behavior. So um, today's guest is C. Eshelman. She's an attachment specialist. Um, She's an author. She has founded the Attach Place Center for Strengthening Relationships. She's got 27 years' experience in training in marriage and family therapy. Um, And she began specializing in attachment and trauma 18 years ago after adopting her two children for the foster care system. And she's going to tell you more about that because. Uh, She thought as a therapist, she was just in this great position to uh, adopt children, uh, be a foster parent and be able to deal with their behaviors. And she realized quickly, like, uh, no, this is really hard stuff. I don't care if I'm a therapist. This is tough. And uh, it led her to uh, publish her book, Drowning With My Hair On Fire. Uh, Insanity Relief for Adoptive Parents. So that's her book, Uh, but she provides so much resources for parents and she's going to talk about that. But for today's topic, we are talking about a coherent narrative, which she is going to talk about, but it's really the process of how we can go back, understand why we are the way we are because of the way we were raised or our childhood was, Um, and how we can make sure that our behaviors and actions are aligned with who we want to be. So without further ado, I'm going to roll that intro and then you guys get to meet C. I'm Rebecca Britt and this is the Stable Moments Podcast. I started this podcast to understand from all perspectives how we can help end the foster care crisis. The overwhelming response was we need to support our local communities. Unwanted, abandoned, orphaned children are the community's responsibility. We must support, guide, love, invest, raise up generations that will nurture love and support their own children to end this crisis. So the purpose of this podcast is to build an army of people that are interested and willing to take responsibility of our foster youth and who are supportive of foster and adoptive families. This is the on-ramp for people who want to get involved but might not know where to start. I want this to be a place where community members feel like they can make a difference, where they feel good enough to make that difference, and believe that they can be a big deal in the life of a child. Thanks for being part of our community and make sure to join the conversation in the Stable Moments podcast Facebook group. Together, we can end the foster care crisis. Well, thank you so much, C, for being on the podcast. I um, saw you at the Attachment Trauma Network conference, and I was just like, yes, this person is speaking my language because I, <laughs> I'm i just really happy to see that it's out there and that you're giving um, opportunities for parents and community members and anybody that works with kids um, the opportunity to explore what's coming up for them while they're working with these kids or while they're raising these children so can you start off by telling us who you are and how you got started in this work just so that we know your background a little bit
1: sure so i'm a marriage and family therapist and i have two children both came home to me from um foster care and they're adopted um and I was a therapist at the time when I adopted them. They are 23 and 25 now. So they're all grown up. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> I, I consider that quite a feat. <laughs> um, Absolutely. But um, when they, I had been a therapist already for 15 years when I brought mm-hmm. them home. And, you know, I thought I was really ready. And, um, and I wasn't. And the reason I'm telling you this piece is that, Consequently, since that time, I have developed a huge um, clinic for uh, adopted kids and their families who are having struggles with complex developmental trauma. So we um, I am the owner of the Attached Place Center for Strengthening Relationships in Sacramento, California, and I'm the primary there, but we have a lot of staff who do a lot of different things, uh, including neurofeedback and EMDR and all those, um, trauma therapies. And then we also, um, facilitate attachment through therapy. So it's a, it's a big organization now, which I would have never imagined I'd be in, um, when I brought my kids home because I was just a regular little therapist in a little office doing what I do by myself, mm-hmm. um, until my eyes were opened. And so then mm-hmm. it changed the course really of my career and my life. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm doing now
0: that's so great um so talk to me a little bit about the i i totally get what you're saying too because when you're a therapist or your backgrounds in social work or you you would just think that you'll be you'll great. be the best at this right i'll be great <laughs> i'm
1: great with other people's kids why wouldn't i be great with my own <laughs> so tell yeah. me what
0: that process was like for you when you were starting to realize like you know i'm i'm like everybody else that struggles um, with this and kind of realizing that and how you were able to get um, resources or able to admit that or.
1: Right. Yeah. So, you know, it took me a long time to realize I was like everybody else. I mean, I mm-hmm. was in the, uh, I brought my kids home and I, I was suddenly like, like a raging mean me, you know, I was just like bah, 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 all the time. I, my, my, lid was flipped all the time, I was yelling at them, I couldn't understand them. Their behaviors were crazy to me. And um and you know, twenty-three years ago, 22, 23 years ago, there really wasn't a lot out there about attachment and trauma. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I when I went to my master's program, I had one course where attachment was mentioned maybe once. And
0: mm-hmm. that was it
1: in all of my um education. And mm-hmm. so and it you know, now you can you can find an an attachment and trauma specialist pretty close to you nowadays, not sometimes not close, but um, often very close compared to what it was like for me. And so I just, I'm like, what, something's wrong with these kids. Mm -hmm. You hear what I'm saying? Something's wrong Mm -hmm. with these kids Mm -hmm. and I need to find out how to help them because they're crazy. I hadn't really been able to turn, uh, turn the mirror around and look at myself. Like Mm. maybe I'm the one that's crazy. So (laughs) I'm throwing that word around pretty loosely. You know what I mean by crazy. I'm acting um, out of sync with my belief about myself. So anyway, um, I had to read all the books on attachment. I mean, there were some really thick toms on attachment, but they were hard to get through. And I, you know, it took me a long time to do that. I went to therapist after therapist. I went to other countries. I went all over the place to try and Find people to help me with my children. Mm. Okay, so that said, the more I started reading about it, the more I realized, oh wait, I have the same childhood, and I had really kind of told myself a complete lie about my childhood without mm. realizing it. I was forty when I brought my kids home, um, and so all my life, my career, everything, I had people would ask me, you know, oh, was your family? I'm like, oh, it was great family. Grew up in the you know, in a small town, and I have siblings, I love my siblings, and my parents were great, blah, blah. That was my story. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't my story. Mm -hmm. But I didn't, because it was just a typical family kind of doing what I thought were typical things. I didn't realize that typical things aren't, you know, an alcoholic dad, typical things aren't, you know, staying a weekend by myself, when I'm 12 years old, Mm -hmm. all by myself, you know, like, That's not typical. It's not typical to be afraid every day. It's not typical. And so I know that sounds just like, well, how uninsightful of you. (laughs) Like, yeah, I guess so. Not when it's your normal. Yeah. I mean, but even as a therapist, you know, I just put myself in the background way far in the background. It just only worked with people in front of me. So anyway, then I started to realize oh, what's happening is that these hurting kids are hurting and they're acting out their hurt in their way, right? They're communicating their hurt in their way. And I am reacting to it in my way from my Mm. own trauma in my own childhood, which turned out to be fairly huge. It turns Mm. out I have, if you're familiar with the ACEs um, Mm -hmm. research, which is um, adverse childhood experiences research here in California, was a huge research project. And I have nine out of 10 ACEs, Mm. which makes me really high on that trauma scale right so anyway once I found that out I realized oh, I'm the problem <laughs> and so then I wanted to work on myself and which was really great I mean i and then it changed my life right I mean I didn't realize how kind of avoidant I was and how much I um, was in my own little cocoon which from my own childhood and how I was I didn't understand children who needed attention because I never got any so I didn't really realize that I'm supposed to give attention like that I mean it was kind of amazing. Mm -hmm. So fast forward, then, um, you know, then I started realizing, oh, all these parents, right, the same boat as me, and just started helping people, you know, like, oh, and I I had to help them from a place of me too. You know, like, yeah, me too. You know, yeah, the shame, me too. Um, The childhood pain, yeah, me too. You know, like, yeah, I'm not a very good parent. Yeah, me too. I am not. I was not. I am now. I am not. was not then. And I just had to own it with people I was working with, which turned out to be sort of the jewel in the crown, right? It's like having a therapist who would be willing to admit that she didn't know either and that she wasn't all put together and that um, she was still working on it. And I'm still working on it today now that I have adult children with complex trauma, I'm working on being a good parent for them. Because, mm-hmm. you know, that goes on what, long into adulthood.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So I totally get the approach of me too. And if you have a parent that's in shame or like, I'm not doing this well, or if they're trauma informed, but so, you know, I've dealt with plenty of parents that become trauma informed and then that increases their shame because they're like, oh my gosh, I sent him to his room. Oh my gosh, I did all these interventions that weren't therapeutic. But what do you do with the, uh, so one of the defense mechanisms or coping mechanisms you might have is to put yourself on the back burner or to minimize what happened to you or um, to just not have the capacity or care to go into your own stuff. And I have met plenty of parents that are just um, interested in fixing. They're at the stage of just fix my kid. You know, I'll bring my kid to the Stable Moments program or to therapy. I don't need to do the family therapy part. Like, I'm fine. They're the one that's, you know, messed up, um, and I was fine before they came to my house and all of that. So, um, how do you, you know, wade your way into talking about? Well, let's just talk about where you come from and 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 that to kind of open their eyes to their process.
1: Well, you know, there are lots of um, doorways in. I do invite them into a membership that we have where there are they think they're coming in to, um, you know, learn about therapeutic parenting for their kids and they end up getting a dose of, um, well, let's first talk about you. And so that, Mm. that is a piece of it, but just ordinarily, I just talk with people about how growing up actually is hard and Mm. it isn't, um, always, you know, rainbows and unicorns and, and that most of us see traditional parenting as normal and our kids can't, our, um, non-traumatized, typically attached children can kind of survive the slings and arrows of traditional parenting with, you know, they still are scathed, but a little less scathed than kids with trauma. And that um that you may not realize. And so it won't hurt to take a look. So I'm not going to ask you to take a deep dive. I'm asking you to take a shallow dive for a little bit mm. and see see if there might be something there that's getting hooked. Right? There are all these hooks on us that we don't know are there because we don't realize that traditional parenting actually can be quite traumatizing. And, um, and that's not, and it's a small, it might be small T trauma. I tell them, because it might be, Um, it might not be any trauma. I haven't met that person quite yet. Mm -hmm. Um, I I hear people that say that I I said that, you know, Um, but I'm like, it's okay. You know, I'm not trying to find deep trauma for you. I'm just, Trying to see if you need a little bit more support because that might be there, and if you don't, hey, cool. Let's just then work on therapeutic parenting. That's all right too, um, and attachment and all of that. But it it's um it's pretty easy for me for some reason. Like I I really love my parents. I love them up. You know, like I'm not the kind of therapist or social worker really that comes from the place of the kids everything. Sorry about mm-hmm. that, kids. Um, <laughs> because I know that the parents are everything to the kid. And so I have to see the parents as everything. Because if I can't reach them, and I can't support them, and I can't love them um, through it, then they won't be able to trickle that down to their kids. And so to me, that's the most important thing. So I really shine a light on the parents more than the kids. There are lots of people focusing on the kids. Um, Not not well, necessarily, mind you. Although I do think um therapeutic horseback riding is awesome um but anyway there are some things that work but mostly we're putting a lot of effort into doing things that aren't really all that helpful for healing children because the parents are the healers of children
0: Mm. i love that and so you touched on this piece of um you know that the parents are everything to the kids, which, which we know that we know that regardless, even if there was a lot of neglect and abuse, that kids idealize their parents and they want to go back to their biological parents. It's, it's what they want. Um, but you know, I've done a lot of this work as well. I'm also an ACEs score nine resilience score four. And I notice all this like, uh, innate desire to want to defend like my parents, this, this, um, this dynamic of, if I say the truth, it means that, you know, I feel like I need to start it with, with, she had a lot of trauma too, and she was trying her hardest. You know, you have to like justify why this happened. And I do notice when I work with other people on stuff like this, that, um, they feel like they're betraying their parents by saying the truth of what happened. So can you, and, and, I feel like we also minimize, like it wasn't that bad, you know, the whole, like, it wasn't rape rape culture or it wasn't, you know, I wasn't beaten every day or so can you tell me just about, um, why we have why we really want to minimize is it to protect ourselves is it society has tried to make us feel like it's not that big of a
1: deal well i think there's a lot of mother shaming right and so i think everybody's slightly aware that moms get blamed for everything and always have been since freud and mm-hmm. um so i think people are kind of protective of their parents so they don't want to be a mother shamer they don't want to dig something up and usually once people are adults. Unless they have severed from their parent because they know they were traumatized, um, they still have ongoing relationships with their parents, right? And so they don't want to tarnish their own relationship with their parents by starting to see them in a different light or making it, quote, worse than it was, that sort of thing. So, you know, I just try to help them. I try to help them see that, you know, this isn't about shaming anybody. As a matter of fact, like this is my motto, no shame, no blame. Right. Mm. So I'm not going to blame your mom or your dad and I'm not going to blame you. And so and I'm not going to blame your kids. So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to look at upping our empathy and compassion for our parents. You know, when you know better, you do better. And they didn't know better um, or they would have done better. And that that's just true. And so that's it. You know, let's just work on that. Let's just work on knowing and not blaming. I
0: love that. And it's really this like objective view. And hopefully, you know, through building that empathy and compassion for others, um, there's also usually a little kid in there yourself that needed a lot of empathy, needs a lot of empathy and compassion too. Yeah.
1: Um, The hardest, actually. That's the hardest to get parents to look at self-care because they um, so self-care it kind of springs up out of self-compassion but a lot of folks have not developed their empathy or compassion for themselves and so because of that then they don't they don't take care of themselves well enough right to withstand um, you know the the difficulty of raising children from difficult beginnings and so you know it all goes together I mean there I could you know, if we talk about one thing, it's going to lead to the next thing and then the next thing. Right. Because it's all it's all connected. So once once I start talking about self-care and that compassion and empathy for yourself is what leads to that. And then upping the empathy and the compassion for children and your parents and all that. I mean, it just change, it's a it's a worldview. Right. It's a shift in the worldview. And it's not a blame culture in this worldview. It's a love culture. It's a compassion culture. And it just says, you know let's just pull everybody out of the darkness into the light and give, Mm. give love instead of, um, more of the same, which is typical parenting that has a dark side.
0: Yeah. And, and when you make the, when blame is at play, you're making conclusions and it feels helpless because it's, it's something you can't change. If you just say it's this person's fault, Mm -hmm. um, then it takes you out of the solution which isn't very empowering. Absolutely, absolutely. I love that. Okay, so I recently saw you give a talk on the idea of a coherent narrative Mm -hmm. and so can you just explain what a coherent narrative is?
1: Yeah, so um, there's I think Dan Siegel who is a clinician who's researched a lot of attachment issues. he's a he's sort of a well-known guy. I think he was the first one to talk about coherent narrative a long time ago. and um, it really became clear to me, as you've heard my story, where I ha- did not have a coherent narrative, which means mm-hmm. I had no idea what had actually happened to me from the beginning of my life to the present. Mm-hmm. And it, if I had told you about it, I probably would have broke down and cried a zillion times in the story and come back and forth and I would have been like embarrassed in the present for the past. And I would have been in shame about how I am now and how some things I did, you know, it just would have been a mess. Right. Um, Because I didn't have a coherent narrative. And all that means is that you have taken the time to know your story from the, from conception, which is means you have to ask people, right. Mm -hmm. Because most of us don't know how we were conceived. Um, And then what the birth Process what the um pregnancy process was, and what the birth process was, and what was it like when you first came home, and what was it like in the first two years, and you know, that sort of story where you really sit with the experience that this happened to you, this happened to me. And some of it's delightful, and some of it's not. And so if it's delightful, then you get to delight in it, and if it's not delightful, you get to, to show compassion for it to yourself, and so. You do that work little by little, depending on, you know, what your ACEs score is. It might take a long time at certain points, but then you bring it forward. You do your um, healing work at each point and you work your story until you can tell your story from conception till now with compassion for yourself. Mm. Right. And so that's a coherent narrative where you can you actually have done the healing. So you don't dip down into, you know, feeling the feelings of the past and the present. And you don't um, act out on your children because of how your mother treated you when you were a child. Um, You don't rage at your children because of pent up rage you've had all these years from unprocessed trauma. So there's just so much healing in a coherent narrative. And so I really work with parents, actually children too, but uh, it started with me working with children to get a coherent narrative so they could start right away with a coherent narrative. And then I realized, wait, 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 parents, parents need the coherent narrative first, right? And so, you know, helping them get through that. And it's it, it can be a really long process. It can be deep dive. But for some people who had, you know, fairly mild childhoods, it's actually a fairly easy process. And theirs might be fairly coherent already. Because trauma is what makes it incoherent, generally. Mm-hmm. And, but, but trauma can be defined in a lot of ways. Like I said before, there's big T trauma and small T trauma. And small T traumas are things like, oh, we moved when I was in the sixth grade, and then I went to junior high, and I didn't know anybody. And I felt weird and awkward, and I just never, I, I was so popular in sixth grade, but then I, you know, like pieces of your story. Or, um, oh, yeah, well, my dad died when I was 16, and my mom just started drinking but not very much, but it lasted about a year. And, you know, just things that you don't think about because it was short-lived or it was big because your dad died, but then your mind was taken away by this other behavior. Just mm. things we don't think about, but, mm-hmm. you know, you start looking at, so there might be small T's, big T's all mixed up together. And then just sort of sort of knowing yourself better. It's, it's like a, it's a little bit of a dating game with yourself, right? You're just learning about getting to know yourself from the beginning of your life to the present with love. Like you're falling in love with yourself because you've made this amazing journey and you've survived it, you know, and either you delight in it because you survived it because it was so great or you delight in, okay, I get it and I'm better now, you know.
0: Do you have questions that you ask at each milestone of like, you know, so what was this like for me or how did this make me feel or is it just like you're watching a movie, just getting to know.
1: Yeah, so there is a, I actually start by doing um, an adult attachment interview with, with my parents, but that's a very simple process and it, it helps a little bit because it asks you to, in this interview, it asks you to um, say five descriptive words to describe your each parent at your very earliest memory. And that's usually about three. People don't have many memories under three. Um, so it's above three usually. But um, so then they give me the words and then I ask them to, uh, you know, give me the memory that goes, a memory, the earliest memory you have that, that um, explains that word that you described mm-hmm. your mom as. And then they start to unfold deeper memories and, and understandings about their parents from the past. And so that's a good starting point, Just, but you, ha, you know, it's really important to not give yourself five descriptive words from like the last week, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> because that's a different parent than, than you had. Um, so that's a, a starting point, but you can just start at the beginning, go do some investigation like, hey, how was I, how did I get conceived in the first place? You know, ask some people if you can. I mean, not everybody's people are still alive or available to that, but do your best. Sometimes there are family stories about things like that. Like in my family, the family story was that um, I was breech, and uh, my mom tells the story that yo gosh, she she nearly killed me at birth, and she's been trying to kill me ever since. <laughs> that was her story, and she thought that was hysterical. Except for me as a child, I was like, oh, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not really, mom. I really didn't know I was doing that to you. But that was her perception, right? And then it became my perception of me. Um, So anyway, those just, what, what do you know? What can you find out? What was your birth like? And all of that, you know, we know now epigenetics impact our gene expression, you know, in our bodies. So, you know, whatever happened to our parents, some of that passes down to us. What happened in utero? Passes down to how our biology is and our emotional experience of being in the womb. Birth trauma sometimes happens, or just birth itself—C-sections, things like that—stays in the NICU. There are just so many things that impact us, and it is amazing sometimes. People have had like lifelong anxiety and feeling like they they um, can't breathe, and then turns out the umbilical cord was wrapped around their neck when they were born. So it's like, you know, there's sometimes there's some direct correlations that sort of, it's enlightening, like, oh, that could be why I'm like this. It might not be, but it it very well could be. (laughs) So we're starting to really look at that kind of research now.
0: That's awesome. So I can't help but think about, you know, how this could be a really interesting uh, exercise for people to do, especially if they have access to their parents still or at least family members. But so we know with so many uh, children in foster care or children who have been adopted that there might be very little on their history or people to access. So, um, what would you say to those people, or how do you fill in the gaps?
1: Yeah. So, you know, with with kids in particular, um, we do their coherent narrative by um, almost like cartoon pictures of times or memories. And so they often don't have any memories um, from their early childhoods, and then we just we create a memory for them. They create a memory for themselves. I shouldn't say we create it. Um, like, well, what do you what do you wish it were like? Mm. What do you imagine it was like? Well, I was told that my mom was a drug addict. Okay, well then you let's put that little picture over in the corner. Do you think she? Do you think if you were born and she ever laid eyes on you that she would have thought you were the cutest thing in the world? Yes. Okay, well, you can put that over here in this picture too, right? Mm. Just, just giving some counterbalance because that's very likely true. You know, just because you're uh, taken away um, from your biological mother who maybe was drug addicted doesn't mean your mother d- wouldn't have loved you. Mm. And so just that kind of thing where putting all of the pieces in there that, that, that are imaginable, both positive and perhaps what you've been told, and then bringing it forward from there. And it's the same with adults, you know, it's like, well, if you don't remember and you can't ask anybody, what do you imagine? You know, where, do you know where you lived? Do you know anything about anything? And it's amazing when people start, when I start asking those kinds of questions, like, you remember what car you were driven around in when, you know, when you were little, oh yeah, we had the station wagon. It was this and that. And then memories come back. Right.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I love that. So it's reminding me, about the life books that we used to create with when I was a post adoption case manager, um, and we would have life book templates that would, you know, what was your, what were your biological parents like? Did you have any pets? You know, what was your first placement? What was your second placement? And we would really advocate for foster parents keeping this going so that they had a narrative. Um, is
1: it is it similar? It is similar. Um, the difference is that sometimes those are put together sort of like a story, like mm-hmm. a like a superficial story mm-hmm. and sort of to just give a, a line of sort of a coherent line of what happened, um, but the child isn't taken deep into the journey because they're young or, you know, it's put together maybe when they're too young to do the process. And so they don't have, so it's not enough to just uh, read a book you know, read the story of your life, right? right. That's, it's too shallow, right? Because the trauma is deeper. And so the process of a coherent narrative is that process with feelings, right? With dipping down into it and finding compassion for that child, including the little, the kids, you know, like, oh, what was it like for you? Do you think it was sad? Yeah, it was probably really sad, you know, and just allowing that to be present for a while, you know, to not just assume we can just tell this whole story in one session. Done. It's it's not like that. Now there's something called um, trauma-focused CBT that people often do. It's like one of the classic things that people are doing now with kids who are traumatized. And I think that's a little bit too early sometimes because it takes kids into their trauma story into the depth of that before they have enough resources to handle it. So it's a little bit re-traumatizing. So you have to be careful when you're doing coherent narrative with children, that you don't take them into that place of uh, despair, perhaps, or pain before you have enough resources built into them that they can survive the journey emotionally.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about that. Let's say uh, this is a mentor listening to this, or this is any adult listening to this, and they're going to start this process. And then they realize, Holy crap, like I'm now sitting here and realizing some stuff. I feel like a lot of times we want to like check a box because we want to say that we did this work and it's like, okay, yep, that was sad. Um, But that happens to a lot of people. Um, So, you know, so if we're really going to sit with that inner child or we're going to sit with where we felt at that time and we're realizing Ooh this is bringing up a lot of stuff for me. What does processing that look like? And do you do you pause? Do you, do you take some time to deal with that and maybe don't continue working on your coherent narrative for a while, you know, do you access um, coherent narrative therapists um, that will help you? (laughs)
1: What's the the resource? Yeah, almost any therapist understands intuitively what a coherent narrative is, even if they don't understand the terminology or they're not attached to trauma specialists, because, you know, we're all trained to dive into the well of someone's history. Um, But it does help to have someone who understands coherent narrative and why you're doing it and it's not about mucking around in the muck and staying there and being cathartic necessarily. It's about reimagining with empathy your life. And so mm-hmm. it's a little bit different. It helps if somebody understands that. So it's not just, oh, I was a victim. Like, okay, yeah, but, you know, all right, but let's do some work now to re-envision what it could have been like or what you wish mm-hmm. it had been like. Or, you know, it's a little bit like na- narrative therapy is like that. You sort of write your way into the future. It's is similar to that. Um, in ther in a therapeutic process so I do think it's helpful to have um, an attachment or a trauma therapist walk you through your coherent narrative and there is no timetable it's more like you know how when you have a bruise a big bad bruise and then like three days go by and it's turned from like green to dark purple or something and you just sort of press on it to see if it still hurts yeah That's, and then, you know, a few days go by and it turns another color and you press on it. Does it still hurt? It's like that, you know, it's like you come to a place in your narrative and it hurts. And then, you know, you sit with that for a while, find some compassion for it, empathy, do the work and the work can look a lot of different ways. Sure. Um, And then, and then go back to it, push on it a little. What is that? What is it like now? I understand it better. It still hurts. Okay. You know, you're not ready to move from that place until you push on it. And it's like, oh, yeah, it doesn't work anymore. Mm, right? Because it that. doesn't. You know, when you process through it and you have found compassion for it and you've let go of the uh, victim part of it and you've been empowered to rewrite it the way you want to and have it come out the way you want to, then, um, you know, you just have a different way of seeing yourself and it's time to move on then.
0: I love that. I really love that analogy of the bruise. Um, okay, so when we start doing this work, I feel like we start to realize that the way we interact with the world, like all of our, um, per, like a lot of parts of our personality or the things we're known for, our identity, <laughs> are rooted in our trauma or experiences And some of those can look like strengths, you know, they're not all, you know, my productivity and believing that my uh, work equals my value, something like that, where it's like to the external world, it just looks like she's super productive and on her game. And it's like, "Mm," you're really trying to ignore something there. So um, how do we figure out or discover which patterns or how we're walking through our life is associated with? um trying to determine when you got those patterns or when they came online because mm-hmm. they cuz a lot of them are you learned to survive that way you know yeah. or that's how you had to be so is can we look at our patterns and get just explore them a bit to see where did that where did that come online and why
1: of course you can do it that way but you can also do it by looking at where am i where am i really good at self care and where am i kind of crummy at it so and people tend to you know Like, I'm really great at creating a beautiful home, a loving home, a safe home. I'm really good at that part because I really got that. But I work like a dog at work and I just slave away and I don't give myself time off. And I'm, oh, I wonder why I do that. You know, then you can go, like, I wonder when I started doing that, oh, who is like that in my family? Where did I get this idea that, you know, working like this is what I need to do in order to be okay in the world? Just that kind of process. So yes. You can do it by just sort of, I wonder where I got this pattern. Um, or you could just look at self-care. It's all around you, you know, where you're like, I think like it's, it's funny where you find things, you know, like I had a, um, a parent come to me and she said, have you ever been, If have you ever seen a house that was perfect? And I'm like, oh yeah, I've seen a lot of houses that are perfect. Uh, model homes usually, <laughs> but trauma homes are often perfect because people mm. are making perfect. So that's my house. And in every drawer, it's a nightmare. Mm. Every drawer is just a mess in my entire house. Every closet, everything behind the perfect is a mess. And so, you know, there was a lot there. Right. And so we just started working on the mess. It's like, well, what does it the mess feel like? You know, what was that feeling like? When did you first get that feeling? What was it like when you were growing up? How were the, how was life, you know? And it's, the metaphors just unfold and people really get it. You know, like oh, sit. I mean the, the the closets actually were all clean in my house when I was a kid, but there was so much chaos mm-hmm. right, in the emotional part of the family. So it's like just that you just start really, it helps to have a guide, someone who can ask you the questions and take you on that journey backward. You don't need a guide. I'm not, I'm not like a hundred percent, everybody needs a therapist um, kind of person, even though I am a therapist. But everybody does need to take a look at themselves if they're having trouble in their lives or if they're having trouble in their parenting lives in particular.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it, it's with caution with the therapist thing, because you can have bad experience, you know, you need the right person and you need uh, I, I've definitely been uh, down the road where things just don't feel like this is working out. And I would t- definitely tell people to trust, you know, your intuition and your gut when it comes to connection and be really selective of who you let into your world and help guide you. Mm-hmm. Um, we are in a pretty cool time. I'm going to say it's a cool time and say, this is a positive of, you know, the uh, telehealth and telemental <laughs> health and because you can yeah. get some people that you would never have access to. Um, and it's really nothing to connect to the therapist that might be in a different part of the world. So yeah, it's just interesting because I feel like so many of these patterns that we take on, if they are from, you know, survival mechanisms or defense mechanisms, they're so good because they had to protect us it's almost hard to become aware of them. So like, I know, um, because one of my things like productivity, I go, okay. So self-care is a thing. So now I'm scheduling in a (laughs) pedicure this day, this yoga, and look, I'm doing it so good and I'm taking care of myself, but it's like, then I'm exhausted that like, now I've got (laughs) to rush through this work to get to it. But on the surface, it looks, I'm doing my thing. So Mm -hmm. it's interesting how the the defense mechanisms or the patterns can attach to even the practical like this is what you're supposed to do <laughs>
1: <laughs> for sure and I, I mean I think that that's why it helps to have you know someone to reflect sort of what's going on most people in your life if you have a best friend you could just ask your best friend or oh, you think I'm like not I don't have it all together and I mean if your best friend has any insight which may not be true but if you have an insightful <laughs> best friend they pretty much know you're your stuff, you know. Like, well, you know how you took that vacation and you went to fifteen countries in a week. That's a problem. <laughs> That's not a vacation, <laughs> right? They can help you look at it.
0: Yeah, I've totally felt that. And I, anybody that I, you know, speak to, whether it's a friend or my husband or um, a therapist that I talk to, I always say that I, you know, I, I welcome them or invite them to hold me accountable and to even just ask is that really aligned or does that really feel like self-care when you're doing it? Um, and I, it's enough time for me to pause and go like, no, like here, here we are again, here I am again. Um, and then get, you know, explore a little bit around that. But yeah, it's kind of that accountability because if you're on your own, you have the same, I mean, skills and toolbox that
1: you've always had. Um, Right. Yeah, you're like a fish in water. You don't know you're in water if you're a fish, right? And that's kind of how we are. We don't know we're drowning because we've always been drowning, you know? Yeah. So that just seems like life.
0: So tell me a little bit about how um, working through this whole process for you has helped you show up more for your kids and or... You um, helping other people, other parents go through this process has helped them show up more for their kids.
1: For me, it was realizing that my children are not an extension of me and they have a trajectory of their own. So um, I, I need to support them in their trajectory, in their life process. And that's what raising children is. It's what love is. Um, it's the same thing I feel about my husband, you know, it's like I support him in the journey of his life. I don't try to make him different or tell him he's wrong or his path is off. You know, I might say, I don't really want to live on this path with you. That might be something Mm -hmm. I come to, uh, in my, you know, in my life, but, um, that's about me, right? That's the part that's about me. But when it's Mm -hmm. about him, I don't try and pressure him into being something he's not. But with my kids, I really early on, I was like, yeah, you need to xyz you know like you can't act like this you can't be like this you can't wear clothes like that you can't i mean I. it was ugly you know because until i realized oh i i am actually just trying to make them into a mini me on some level without realizing it you know like i'm thinking i'm helping them be good citizens and be productive in the world exactly the way i do it <laughs> so um that to me is like one of the major understandings that I got along the way that they are not me, that I'm me and they're them and unconditional love means loving them no matter what. Mm. And that, you know, not just not having um, conditional love, which is, you know, when you're doing what I like, then I love you. And when you're not doing what I like, I, I really, I don't approve of you, which means that I don't love you to them. So I learned that and I, I just don't do that. And I stopped doing that a long time ago, but it it wasn't before they had impact from my negative behavior where I was over controlling them to try and get them to be what I wanted them to be. And they came with their own history and they have their own trajectory because of that. And, you know, all I can do is support them and love them along the way, and not be disapproving of them to keep them in line. So that's that's sort of the big takeaway for me is that I want to be loved unconditionally by my husband, for example, I mean, with exceptions, you know, um, I think he'd still love me though. He just wouldn't live with me. Mm-hmm. And that, You know, I think that that's, I want to love unconditionally and I want to love my children that way. And I I didn't always, because I wasn't loved unconditionally. I was loved very conditionally, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what my parents would say. They're both gone now, but, and I would would have liked to have asked them what they thought, <laughs> mm-hmm. but um, I didn't get the chance to do that. But I feel like I was expected to be a certain way and that when I wasn't, I was disapproved of in a very severe shaming way and it impacted me the rest of my life.
0: When you're talking about that, it's making me think of this, um, the word fear keeps coming up. But when, you know, we know that uh, a lot of kids uh, control is such a, such a big theme for them needing control. Um, And A lot of times therapeutic interventions will help you, you know, give them that control. And then even when you're talking about like choosing what they, what they wear and how they show up in the world and all of this, that's control. And, um, and it makes me think of, so when I would work with parents, I'd I'd ask, what's your, what's your biggest fear? What are you afraid of? So if they wear that to school, what, what might happen, you know, what is behind that? Mm-hmm. And the fear often was like they're going to end up in jail.
1: Always. They're going to, you know, going to kill somebody or end up in jail. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. Which I'm is like really? it <laughs> does. It does feel like a big, <laughs> you know. As a parent, there's some things that we might judge our success on, and jail might be, you know, a kid being <laughs> out of jail might be a good metric. But I did do so much work on like, so let's go there. And I'm going to help you be able to talk to your kid with love in jail. If they're in jail, and that's where their their uh, you know their path leads at some point, then we're going to be able to visit that kid and and talk to that kid in jail. Um, and being able to realize some of those fears, I think, was helpful. But I do think that so many of our um, behaviors or things that cause us frustration are are rooted in a fear of something.
1: Oh, completely. Absolutely fearful. Everybody's fearful. Everybody wants um, good things for their kids and they see the, you know, the behavior of children with complex trauma is similar to typical behavior. It's just um, the intensity and the duration and the frequency of it is pronounced, right? It's multiplied. So, um, but the behaviors themselves are just, you know, Kids tantrum, kids break things, kids run off. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's just kind of typical kid behavior. But the difference is complex trauma makes it exponential. Um, And so the exponential quality of it is what's scary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but this is so much worse. And I'm like, well, Mm -hmm. it's so much more frequent. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's about the trauma and that's about um, the regulation system. And that's about, you know, dysregulation and dismaturity. So hang on this will this this will run its course but it won't be until somewhere in the 20s just know this they're not leaving the house at 18 and making good decisions out there they're not going to be able to do that and and that's just probably a fact mm-hmm. so ride the wave a little further out into the future and they will do better than you think mm-hmm. um, unless you shove them out the door at 18 and you say you need to have a job and you have to have things that they are not capable of having, then they'll end up doing things that they'll end up unfolding the nightmare that you were afraid of to start with. Right. 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 So we just have to know what our fears are. And, and I just, I, I don't do it the way you do it. I mean, I haven't ever thought about that a a conversation down the road about if they're in prison, thank you. Um, (laughs) I I might add that to my repertoire. Um, But what I, what I try to do is get people to live now. It's like, let's just live now, live with love. Now live with, live without um, meanness now. Mm -hmm. And don't think that meanness in the form of punishment and, and traditional parenting will help this. It won't. So let's learn how to be loving to these really wounded kids now and see what happens. Right. Let's just see what happens. And, and trust me, when I tell you, I have worked with hundreds of parents and children now, and the, most of the kids don't go to prison. They don't. M- most of them have a little smackdown somewhere in adolescence, <laughs> and, you know, run in with something or another. But they, if you support them and they make it through, they will go on and, you know, become productive adults one way or another. It's just down the road. And so hang in there. Don't stop loving them because they can't do it yet.
0: Yeah. And I'm thinking of how detrimental it could be to constantly state or speak that narrative of you're going to be in prison or, you know, for just to say that that's what you think um, will end up or the child will end up doing. At some point, the child goes, "Okay, I guess that's
1: where I'm headed. That's what you think. Yeah. Yeah. I have a little story about that. My husband uh, is not my children's. Uh, father. I, we got married later after I already um, adopted my kids. And so he came into the picture late and he came into a pretty big nightmare, frankly. I don't mm-hmm. know what was wrong with him, but anyway, he <laughs> did he did take it on. Um, but he became so afraid, not mm-hmm. of, of what was going to happen to them because he wasn't connected to them exactly the way I was, but what was going to happen to me. He felt mm-hmm. afraid that they were going to do bad things to me because they were so angry and reactive and, you know, sometimes violent. Um, he became so afraid that he would, he put a lot of pressure on me to, you know, okay, when they're 18, when they're 18. Mm. <laughs> and so we had to, we literally had to change the configuration. I'm still married to him and I love him dearly. Um, but we had to change the configuration of our marriage And we lived in separate houses next door to each other during this difficult period so that he didn't, he could bring his fear down. Like his Mm. fear was so great living with them. He couldn't tolerate it. So, you know, we just did something different and it worked great. It's like, okay, you're out of the mix, you know, so you don't have to be bombarded by all that. And I can hold it because I'm not afraid of them because I don't think they mean it about me and they might, but I'm not going to be worried about what's going to happen in four years from now now that kind of thing so you know sometimes you do have to make some radical changes in order to do what you signed on the line to do which is raise children with complex trauma and i know you didn't know you were doing that usually i mean you know something about it but you don't know how much about it (laughs) until you're living with it right and then it's like did i sign for this really and like well yeah (laughs) yeah actually you did (laughs) just like when you you birth a child you don't know you're signing right for that child taking them out of the hospital, they're yours, so, you know, whatever comes. So it's the same.
0: That's incredible. That's an incredible uh, example of protecting your commitment to your kids, protecting yourself, protecting your marriage, and all <laughs> figuring out how to make it work together. That's yeah.
1: Yeah. It was beautiful. It actually, this is my high point in my life that I'm, <laughs> that I, that, point, which is a high point, like, okay, we can figure this out. You know, like, this has been really hard, but this, this relationship stuff, I can figure this out. We can figure this (laughs) out.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. So um, tell me about uh, resources that you have for parents, for kids. Uh, What are, what are the resources that people can access?
1: Yeah. So one of the things we provide is an online uh, year long Membership. It's called the Love uh, Matters Parenting Society. I Almost couldn't get it out of my mouth. The Love Matters <laughs> Parenting Society. And um, it is a journey across week to week, um, growing your understanding of yourself, including that coherent narrative. And then a quarter we spend on you doing that and your self-care and understanding why you feel the way you do about your kids sometimes, what what gets pulled up and what's happening, and then working on you. And then a quarter we work on understanding through a neurodiversity lens your kids, and then we do a, a quarter on therapeutic parenting, just like what are the techniques? Almost, you know, what are, what are the what's the foundation? Um, what does it look like when you're you're perfecting that? And then we show a lot of different models in that time. And then the last quarter we spend just practicing and getting feedback and talking. So it's a wonderful, incredible group of people. I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky. I'm on staycation right now this week. So um, this is the first week I've taken off um, in a long time because I've been on staycation. So it felt like I was home for a year plus. Right. But I've taken it off and I realized, oh, I don't want to be out of my membership for a whole week because it's not like work. Right. It's like these are these are my peeps. It's just this incredible group of parents who are walking the same walk and they are making an attempt to have a paradigm shift and to, to raise their children in love and with understanding about neurodiversity, understanding about trauma, understanding about their own trauma and working together to support one another, to lift them up. So lift each other up. So it's like, you know, when you lift one, you lift us all. And it's, Mm. it's so incredible. So, you know, it's a monthly membership. People do have to pay um, a small monthly fee. It's not small for some people. Sorry, I didn't mean to say it that way because it can be a lot, actually. Um, but it's. Uh, but I will open it to anybody who tells me they don't have $33 a month to spend on it. I will open the doors anyway um, because I want people to get in. And I want people to get this and have the gift of this. So Um, that's what I have to offer probably anybody that's looking at or listening to your podcast. And um, I just encourage people to get the resources they need. And this is one way to get it no matter where you live. And we have people in this membership from all over the world, which Mm -hmm. is so awesome too, right? We have people in Iceland and Canada and Ireland and, you know, just people and we're all living in COVID right now. So for a year, all of us have been living in COVID in all these different countries. It's just been it's just been amazing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That, that's great. And I, I definitely will link to um, the link to get anyone that wants those resources started. And I can also share that out on the social media. Um, And you also have a book as well.
1: Oh yeah. I don't even think about that anymore. You get the book (laughs) and the membership just so you know. Yeah. That's it over there. It's drowning with my hair on fire. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) And it's, um, know, it's, it's a day, it's just a day at a time uplift and education on therapeutic parenting and, you know, how to get through it one day at a time. Nice.
0: Nice. I love that. I really love this idea of this membership um, and community. I I just know that um, being a foster or adoptive parent can be so isolating um, and you know, i I started my work in Vermont where like, I would have to drive an hour and a half to, in this rural area yeah. and, it, you know, and even if they needed like crisis services by the time, you know, anybody got to them, it was over, <laughs> it was over <laughs> you know, and we always just felt so badly. And I was like, Oh, this is so isolating. But you know, even when I moved to Atlanta and they were surrounded by so many people and church family and good meaning, well-intentioned people, they were still, uh, isolated and felt shame and different um, expectations about what the process was going to be like and how they were going to show up to the work. And then when they couldn't do that, who do they tell that to? And who, how do they deal with some big fam- feelings like I wish I had never done this or
1: I don't like this kid? Um, and being or just able to voice- parent, being a blocked parent, right? Where you yes. your parenting is blocked. And like yeah, I don't feel anything for this kid anymore except I wish they weren't here. And that's mm-hmm. so painful to acknowledge and so shameful and embarrassing and everything you can imagine. And it helps to have a room full of people who have been there, done that, right? They get you and, and love you and support you to do what you need to do to get your heart back, which you can, by the way, but it's a process and it takes a while. It takes a good community around you.
0: Yeah. And it's also, I've also seen how amazing it can be when somebody has a four-year-old um, and they're in a group with somebody that has a 16-year-old and <laughs> how some of the things that they're going through are exactly, the same, exactly but the same. Other things they were, they're like, it does get better or it gets different or they have, you know, some practical things that they can share with them. So I really, I can't stress community enough and having people that that you can rely on. So, and it sounds like you have a a structured community that brings them through, not just a get together, but, um, you know, some intention behind what we're doing together and what we're working on.
1: Right. And that means that the support you get is always about moving forward with love um, in a, in a vein, right? In a therapeutic parenting vein. And so you don't get anything like, well, he just needs a good spanking, you know, like that, that will never be out of the mouth of anybody here, except to say, I thought he needed a good spanking. And so I gave him Mm -hmm. one. And I, you know, now I see better that Mm -hmm. that might happen, (laughs) but it won't be the advice. (laughs) Sure. Oh, well, this has
0: been so great. I'm so glad that not only do you have all of this knowledge to share, but you also have a real practical resource uh, for parents and, um, this, I just think this is so great that there's more awareness being brought to our process and not this divide between the kids and the parents, but kind of these Mm -hmm. stories that all run together um, and all impact our experience. And at the end of it, hopefully we feel, you know, a bit lighter, a bit more connected. um, And it's, I I feel like it's so valuable to hear other people's st- stories, other people's narratives, other people's experience, so that you can start to relate. Because, gosh, I just feel like that's that's where the
1: healing lies. Absolutely. It really does. The community has just been fabulous here for that. And I see that. I mean, I'm, that's why I started it. So I had mm-hmm. um, programs in my office same program in my office but it was shorter and less community oriented because it was office work you know like yeah um i'm like this doesn't work people go home and then they forget or they don't have support around them to do it so that's why i started the membership this way and it's i wish i had done this years ago right that's i, I started this like a, two years ago and i wish i'd done it 10 years ago i didn't i didn't get it, it didn't click for me or maybe it just things weren't online like they yeah. are now so now yeah. is was probably an evolution yeah Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for what you're doing. I love what you're doing. I mean, really, you're just a young version of me, aren't
0: you? (laughs) I I am. Although I don't know that I ever care to really be a therapist, but, um, (laughs) but the, uh, I do, I do love to help others help people. So.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's awesome. So I really appreciate what you're doing to get the word out.
0: Thank you so much. Well, you have a great rest of your day. Enjoy your Thank staycation. You.
1: Thank you. Enjoy your pregnancy. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Because love matters. <laughs> bye bye.
0: What a rock star, C is. I hope you guys really enjoyed that. Um, There are a lot of people that may or may not have already looked into their own stuff and their own childhood. And then this work, um, becoming a foster or adoptive parent or becoming a mentor, their stuff doesn't really come up for them until they're in this work. Um, And that's what our last guest, uh, Steve, said um, happened for him. And so he needed to kind of create this parallel process so that he could heal his trauma Um, while he was helping his children heal trauma. So hopefully this gave you guys some practical tools to do that, to go back, understand what your childhood was like, and understand your coherent narrative. And hopefully that will help you show up better in your role with children, whatever that may be, uh, mentors, a community member, foster adoptive parent. If you go to attachplace.com, you can see more about the Love Matters Parenting Mastermind group that C offers. I will link that in the show notes. We're announcing the winner of last month's book drawing in the Stable Moments podcast Facebook group. We hope to see you in there and I'll talk to you guys next month.